Hey everyone, just a quick reminder that our seven week online workshop on healing autoimmunity naturally with functional medicine started yesterday. Even though we've already begun, there's still time for you to join and everything is recorded so you haven't missed out on anything. In this workshop, we'll be sharing the same approach and many of the same strategies and tools that I use in my practice when I'm treating patients with autoimmune conditions. In short, I wanted to provide some of the benefits of working with me directly at a fraction of the cost. Here are just a few highlights of what you'll learn. The six root causes of autoimmunity and the four pillars of treating autoimmune disease from a functional medicine perspective. The best dietary approaches for autoimmunity and how to choose the right one for you. The role of gut health in autoimmune disease and how to heal your gut. The most important functional medicine lab tests and treatments for autoimmune disease and the top supplements and herbs that I use in my clinic with autoimmune patients. This won't just be book learning. We'll give you the guidance you need to apply what you learn in the workshop in your own life so you can start feeling better and take back control of your health. For all of the details about this program, including an outline of what's in each of the seven modules, go to cresser.co slash autoimmune. If you're interested, make sure to sign up in the next day or two so you can take full advantage of the material. Once more, that's cresser.co slash autoimmune. Hope to see you there. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. Someone in the world develops dementia every three seconds with over 10 million new cases worldwide each year. There are over 50 million people around the world now living with dementia. And this number will almost double every 20 years reaching 82 million in 2030 and 152 million in 2050. This is one of the scariest pandemics of chronic disease that we're facing today. The annual global cost of dementia is now above $1 trillion. But even this staggering number doesn't reflect the true cost of the disease, which is the horrific toll that it takes on the affected individual and those they are close to. We know, for example, that caring for someone with dementia or Alzheimer's is one of the most stressful situations we can experience, as evidenced by the fact that many research studies seeking to examine the impact of stress recruit caregivers of Alzheimer's patients as subjects. But despite the shocking impact of dementia on our lives and institutions, there are few, if any, effective treatments available, at least within the conventional me medical paradigm. And that's why I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Dale Bredesen back as a guest on the show. Dr. Bredesen is internationally recognized as an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's disease. And he's also the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The End of Alzheimer's in 2017, and the End of Alzheimer's Program in 2020. He's held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, and the University of California, San Diego. And he's directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before coming back to the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. And he's currently a professor at UCLA. I had Dr. Bredesen on the show before to discuss his two books and his groundbreaking functional medicine approach to treating dementia and Alzheimer's. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the latest updates on this really important topic. In this show, we'll discuss the latest updates on Dr. Bredesen's approach to preventing and reversing cognitive decline with functional medicine, recent research that validates the results of Dr. Bredesen's protocol, why Dr. Bredesen decided to write a book featuring stories from patients who've gone through his RECODE protocol, surprising insights and the key takeaways from patients that have done the RECODE protocol, and what's next for Dr. Bredesen's research and the RECODE protocol. 
We've used elements of Dr. Bredesen's protocol in our clinic for many years with great success. So I'm eager to have this conversation so we can share his most recent insights with all of us. Let's dive in. Dr. Bredesen, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show. I've really been looking forward to this. Thanks so much, Chris. I love the work you're doing. Always enjoy talking to you. It's always enlightening. So thank you. So I'd love to start with just kind of an update since you've been on the show before. We've talked about your groundbreaking work using a functional medicine approach to reverse cognitive decline. And so I'd just love to hear what's new. I mean, I recently saw, I think, you know, my sense of time is admittedly yeah. a little blurry these days, but yeah, it really. seems pretty recent that I saw a study that came out validating recode protocol or studying a certain aspect yeah. of it. So I'd love to hear about that and just any kind of general updates uh, with, with recode and the, and the protocol. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Lots going on. So as you know, back in 2011, we actually uh, uh, tried to do the very first, uh, very first comprehensive protocol for cognitive decline. We got turned down. It was you know multiple variables. What's wrong with us? We don't know how to do it. Trial all this sort of stuff. So we finally then we did a bunch of anecdotes. We published a hundred anecdotes with uh, documented improvement 2018. So we finally got it approved in 2019. We finished the trial December of 2020. We're still analyzing the data. Very exciting. So we just put on the med archive, the preprint server that a lot of COVID things yep. and various things are on. So it's now public information. Our first proof of concept trial, 25 patients, they did spectacularly well. So it was really exciting to see this. 84% of them improved their CNS vital sign scores. 76% improved their MOCA scores. We looked at five different things. We looked at their AQ change scores, which is basically a partner generated. Because as, as you know, with some of the drugs, you'll find a minimal effect, but the partner can't even see it. I was like, oh, I, I can't tell. These people actually improved. It was great to see. Their MRIs actually improved. So interestingly, there, as you know, just aging alone, you have a slight reduction of gray matter and hippocampal volume, both over age. With Alzheimer's or, or mild cognitive impairment, you have an accelerated decline in this. And in this case, people actually did better than normal aging, even though they had MCI or Alzheimer's disease. Their gray matter volume actually increased, which was a, a striking, um, and their hippocampal volume very slightly declined, but less than normal controls. So very exciting results. We also did Brain HQ, and all of them did better on Brain HQ. So by all of those five parameters, people improved. And I think it's important, you know, that we talk about the semantics of success. As you know, aducanumab was just approved on June 7th, and it doesn't make you better, and it doesn't even stabilize you. In one trial at one dose only, it slowed the decline by 22%. In our trial, you actually get better. You don't just slow your decline. So it's just strikingly different. Yeah. I mean, this goes to me, it, it speaks to the fundamental difference in the paradigm and the approach, right. you know, right. one in one paradigm, you're, you're basically just trying to slow the progression of the right. disease using drugs that suppress symptoms, rather right. than really looking at what are the root causes of this ongoing cognitive decline? And how can we identify and address them so that the, the patient can not only slow the progression, but even stop and reverse the progression. So exactly. you, you used one example, but I want to highlight this for folks that are maybe less familiar with the conventional medicine options for Alzheimer's and, and cognitive decline. Uh, how did the results of your trial compare with the currently available conventional treatments? 
Yeah, very good point. So there are three different treatments that are now available. So one is an anti a cholinesterase inhibitor like Aricept. That will give you a slight bump, but you go right back to declining. And in fact, if you look down the road, in the long run, people actually do worse if they took that drug than if they didn't. That's the scary part. Furthermore, yeah. if you cold turkey the drug, you drop down dramatically and typically do much worse. The second one is memantine, which has a minimal effect. P the families couldn't tell who was on it in the trials and who wasn't on it. So a very, very minimal effect, although again, just a barely significant effect to with slight improvement. And again, you go right back to declining. Um, and then the third one, which are these monoclonal antibodies. So the drugs for these are anti-amyloid antibodies have not worked and multiple have failed. And in fact, we've seen a number of patients who clearly got worse, which actually, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. Your amyloid is there as a protection. It is a response to these functional medicine insults that we talk about all the time, various pathogens and toxins and decrease in metabolism, all these sorts of things. And so you give these and it removes, it's a little bit like getting rid of the, you know, the, the president of your country. Well, you might be able to get away with some things that you couldn't get away with for a short period of time, but your country is going downhill. Right. And uh, this is the same sort of thing you see with this, with this drug. So you actually see people get worse. So it's a, unfortunately, pharmaceuticals for Alzheimer's currently, at least alone, uh, do not work. Well, that approach reminds me somewhat of the conventional approach to certain autoimmune conditions and the yeah. use of, of biologic response modifiers like Imurin and Remicade, yeah. where, you, yes, they're very effective at suppressing the immune system, but they, they're non-selective in what they're yeah. suppressing. They're globally suppressing the immune system, and then you get a situation where oh, wait, I actually need my immune system to fight infections and not yeah. get sepsis. And yeah. so you see on the black box warnings of those medications that, that there's a potential for those very serious side effects and complications, because instead of asking the question, what is aggravating the immune system and causing immune dysregulation in the first place. And let's look right. at that. It's let's just like, oh, a part of the immune system is overactive. Let's just globally suppress the whole thing. It's, yes. it's just, it's very strange to me that we're in 2021 and that's still the thought process behind approaching chronic diseases like this. Like why, why is it taking us so long to learn? I mean, you've been involved in this you started out in the in the conventional Virtual. paradigm yeah. and 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 with drug discovery if i'm if i'm not mistaken and yeah. and look looking at these drug treatments you saw that that was not um going to be a fruitful path after as many years as you were in it but this it seems to me that that it's you know we're the conventional approach is still very much designed or, uh, around this silver bullet idea and i love the term you use and we need silver buckshot but right. maybe you could talk a little bit about that just from your inside perspective having been involved in in that world and now being in the in you know developing your own functional approach why do you think it's taking so long um, it's a, for yeah. progress to be made here it's such a good point, uh, Chris, and this is one that comes up all the time. And I was recently invited to a major national show to talk about our work. And then I was literally uninvited 
the the day that they had someone from the Alzheimer's Association on the show, I was like, no, we, we don't want to hear about the way it actually works. We want to push the drug. And unfortunately, the Alzheimer's Association was paid by Biogen, the company, to talk about how good this new drug is, which which doesn't work. So it's 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 very unethical and it's unfortunate, actually. So, you know, the, the problem here is that finances and politics outweigh truth. That, that's the bottom line. Sad to say, but uh, you know, we need to deal with the truth, the data. That's which is why I think it's critical to get these clinical trials out, to get the truth out about what actually works. And as you indicated, we need to be asking why. Why do you actually have this problem? Uh, there's a one drug you, I'm sure you've seen. All it does is it kills your eosinophils. So basically, <laughs> oh, you got eosinophils? Oh, let's kill them. I yeah. mean, it's, it's such a silly uh, and naive approach. Let's ask, why do you have these eosinophils there? Let's not just kill them before we know why they're there. And so yeah. you're right, this is happening everywhere in these complex chronic illnesses, which are the major causes of morbidity and mortality in our country currently and in the Western world currently are not being approached by the kind of medicine that we were taught 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and certainly that's true for me and for, you know, for all of us. So we do, we do need to come into the 21st century and ask why. And so what was interesting to me, I had a lot of interaction with my neurological colleagues who were already kind of presupposing, okay, we're going to get a drug. It's going to be a monophasic sort of thing. We're going to give you one drug, same for everything, uniform, having nothing to do with what causes the disease. And we're going to find one that makes you better. It's a little bit like saying, you know, we're going to find an arrow that shoots to the moon. You can try all the arrows, keep pulling that bow back. Oh, maybe this arrow, maybe that arrow, maybe this arrow. But you have to get the fundamental concept that, no, that's not the way this works. You're actually going to have to build a rocket to get there. And so our research, as you said, showed over the years that you can actually trace the molecular pathways. You can see how NF-kappa-B turns on specific genes, including the beta and gamma secretases. You can see why your APP has shifted from a growth and maintenance mode into a protective downsizing mode. This is analogous to what's happened to all of us with COVID-19 where we were told to, you know, social distance, uh, uh, isolation, et cetera. And what happens? We, you know, we go into a recession. And so same thing is happening with your brain. You are protecting yourself. You're going into a protective downsizing and mode. And until you're able to determine why that is and address those very things, and there can be dozens and dozens of them, you're going to continue in this downsizing mode. I do think in the long run, Chris, bringing these together, having specific targeted drugs with precision medicine protocols are going to be the best way to go. Yeah. Well, I hope we get there sooner rather than later, because as I was remarking in the introduction, the numbers are pretty staggering. You know, some estimates I've seen, there'll be 150 million people with dementia by, by 2050, and maybe that's even conservative, you know, might, might, yeah. might be more than that. And, you know, I don't know anybody who, I mean, I don't know anyone who wants to die, period. But like no. most people, I think if you ask them how they want to die, it's maybe a heart attack in bed or something yeah, like right. that. It's not dementia and Alzheimer's. Right. Like that's right. pretty much one of the most scary ways to, um, you know, to spend the later years of your life. And it, so it's, it's, a, it's a really, really urgent 
pressing problem. I mean, all chronic diseases, arguably, but this yeah. is seems to be like at the top of the list <laughs> in terms of uh, how important it is that we get a handle on this. So I want to go back to something that you that you know we were both kind of alluding to. It's a fundamental difference in functional medicine versus conventional medicine. Yeah. Uh, and I and then I want to. Uh, a segue into asking you about how you approach Alzheimer's. So mm -hmm. in the conventional model, model, it's one disease, one treatment, right? So right. It, it's like you have IBS, you take this drug. Right. It doesn't matter what kind of IBS you have <laughs> right, right. Or, or how you got your IBS, you take that drug. If you have diabetes, you take this drug. It doesn't matter what the underlying causes were. Um, and that's how Alzheimer's is being approached, as you mentioned. But yeah. when an, in functional model, you could have someone with the same disease, 10 people with the same disease, but 10 different profiles of how that got caused. For example, maybe Absolutely. some, maybe 10 people with Crohn's disease. One person maybe has post-infectious Crohn's disease because they got an infection, you know, like a parasite infection, and that is evolved then into Crohn's disease. Maybe somebody else was exposed to you know high levels of mercury or lead and that dysregulated their immune system and they developed Crohn's disease that way and you can go on down the list and the thing is the treatment will be different for right. each of those people you might use some things that are the same but there are other things that will be different and that's to me one of the things that stands out the most about recode and your approach to alzheimer's is you have different you're acknowledging the different types Yes. of the disease and those different types are caused by have usually different causes so can you for the folks who didn't hear the first podcast with you can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what those types are and what kind of insight they provide into the treatment protocol this is a great point chris um, and yeah you, we've talked about this before and as you indicated there are different things that all contributed ultimately what we found is that what we call alzheimer's disease is fundamentally an insufficiency. There is a supply and a demand, and when the supply is is constantly is chronically exceeded by the demand, and it's you know, multiple different things as we'll talk about. And, but let me just preface this by saying, for the first time, from the work you're doing, from the work we're doing, from the work others are doing, virtually nobody needs to get Alzheimer's. It really is now an optional. I know that sounds crazy, but it is an optional disease. If everybody gets on appropriate prevention, and we recommend when people hit 45, you know, get a cognoscopy or appropriate early reversal, please don't wait, then virtually no one needs to get this disease. Now, as you indicated, we wanna understand why you get it. It's different for each person. And so type one is inflammatory. And this can be from pathogens, it can be from metabolic syndrome, it can be from poor dentition, so forth and so on. Type two is atrophic. And these are people who don't have enough hormones or growth factors or nutrients. Type 1.5, because it's got some of both of those, is glycotoxic. These are people who become insulin resistant. So they have some of the type 2 because their insulin signaling doesn't work. They also have some inflammation from the non-enzymatic glycation. Then there's type 3, which is toxic. And the toxins come in, as you know, three basic groups. It's the inorganics, things like mercury, and also the, you know, the air pollution uh, we have here in Cal, especially in California, and uh, people who were in the California fires, things like that. Then it's the organic. 
glyphosate, toluene, benzene, things like that, formaldehyde. And then at the third group is the biotoxins, very common. We see people all the time, just heard about a patient a couple of minutes ago, um, who's, it turned out their ductwork had major, major mold. And of course, this person's getting exposed to this every day. Uh, and then type four is vascular, very common association with Alzheimer's disease, and type five is traumatic. So those are the six different types that we see. And interestingly, we've now developed, you can actually look at an equation that says your probability of developing it is proportional to an integration over time. So you're looking at all your exposure over to time to two, basically four things, two things in the numerator, two things in the denominator. So anything that increases inflammation, as we talk talked about pathogens, et cetera, anything that increases toxins. And then on the denominator, anything that will reduce energy, and that's mitochondrial function, cerebral blood flow, oxygenation, ketosis, all of those. And then anything that will reduce trophic influences. And that's everything from vitamin D to estradiol, to testosterone, to nerve growth factor, to BDNF and those things. So if you just look at those four groups, you can see why the person's system, why their neural subnetwork is now involuting, which is what's happening. And for each of these neurodegenerative diseases, they have their own unique neurochemistry. And so you've got to identify those issues. You've got to address those issues. And as you indicated, it's different for each person. Absolutely. Right. Well, I mean, one, one thing that, that stands out is it's really hard to do that in a 10 to 12 minute appointment, you know, in, <laughs> in the conventional model or even a half hour appointment, frankly. I mean, that, that's a lot of information to be collecting and diagnosis. And, and you've really systematize this in a big way with the recode protocol and the software and all the tools that you offer to clinicians that you train. Um, but what, do you, what would you say to someone who says, geez, that's just a lot of work. That's the, you know, that's, that's a lot of money to spend on testing and diagnosis. You know, it's so much easier just to, and faster just to prescribe a drug. What, what's, what, how would you respond to that? You know, it's just such a great point because we pointed out in the publication on the trial, we can show now that it's possible to do this and clearly show even a denominator, how often can we do it, et cetera. What we haven't shown is that it's practical and you're absolutely right. So here, but here's the problem. The average American spends $350,000 during their time with Alzheimer's, much of it, no surprise, on nursing homes. With the new drug, the new drug is, is $56,000 per year, plus administration costs, plus MRI and PET scan costs. So total, it's about $100,000 per year for something that does not make you better. It might slow the decline a little bit, or although it might make it worse, and we've seen that happen as well. So in fact, even if you were simply investing uh, for your for a portfolio or something, you will actually put far less money and do far better for far longer by doing the appropriate protocol, by, by looking at what's causing it and then addressing the things it causes. So I usually tell people, imagine that you're going to spend something like a tenth of what you would spend for a typical Alzheimer's patient. We're gonna keep you out of the nursing home, keep you out of your decline. And one of the things that we're doing now is, is, is uh, pr putting together a program that will guarantee prevention. Because what we're seeing is nobody who goes on prevention 
actually ends up declining. We don't see people become demented if they are on appropriate prevention. Now, of course, if they don't do it, if they, they are not compliant, they don't do the right things, they ignore it, of course, they're at risk. But for those who do the right things, we can pretty much prevent everyone from developing cognitive decline and ultimately Alzheimer's. That is just amazing. And that's why I'm always so excited to talk to you because so many people interpret Alzheimer's uh, or even the early signs of dementia as like a death sentence. You know, yeah. there's, there's no way out. It's just going to get worse and worse. And even just like colloquially, when you go, if, if someone, I'm middle-aged, it's very funny. healthy middle-aged it's funny to say that <laughs> i like i kind of like to say it just because it, it's uh but anyways if i went into the doctor which i don't i i can't even remember the last time i went into a doctor conventional doctor but if i did and i said you know i'm i'm feeling a little bit more tired right i'm, I'm starting to forget things you know i couldn't find my keys the other day or i you know, I have difficulty with recalling certain words. I they probably just like pat me on the back and say, "Welcome to you know, welcome to the human race" or something about yes, normal. This is just normal for age. You, right. you just you should just expect to decline, you know, in 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 significant ways as you age. And you're saying that that's not necessarily normal. That's a, such a good point. And you know, Chris, this really brings up one of the most important points. And the reason that we've had so much Alzheimer's in our society, and this is because people have actually named it incorrectly. Here's what I mean by that. There are four stages of this problem. Stage one is you don't feel anything. You're asymptomatic, but you already have the underlying biochemistry. That's been shown very nicely by PET scans, spinal fluid, et cetera. So you have a period there where you don't know you're in a pre-symptomatic stage. Then you go into SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. You know there's something wrong. Your spouse may know it. Some of your coworkers may know it, but you're still testing in the, in the, in the normal range. And so that is called subjective cognitive impairment. But what it should be called early Alzheimer's disease. Virtually every one of those people, we can improve them, get them back to normal. That can last 10 years and it typically does last about a decade. Then you go into what's called MCI, mild cognitive impairment. Now, as you can see, that's the third of four stages. Doctors will say to you, ah, it's a little bit of age. That's, ah, you know, it's mild cognitive impairment. This is like telling someone they have mildly metastatic cancer. This is a, this should be called advanced stage Alzheimer's disease because it's a relatively late stage. You've already had more than 10 years of the underlying biochemistry by the time you get to MCI. But as you indicated, most doctors just tell you, ah, Chris, you're getting a little older. Don't worry about it. They should be jumping on this with, you know, with all four feet jumping on making sure that everything works. Let's see what's causing this. And then what we call Alzheimer's, where you actually have to lose activities of daily living, should be called final stage Alzheimer's because that is a very, very late stage of the, of the underlying pathophysiological process. So all of us should be getting evaluated as we get older and should be optimizing things and make sure that we do not get Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, this this drives me crazy. And I talked about it in my my second book on conventional yeah. medicine. I use the example of diabetes where yeah. uh, it costs $15,000 a year in the healthcare system to treat a patient with type two diabetes, relatively affordable compared to Alzheimer's, right? Yeah. Or, or, or yeah. dementia. But, yeah. but still, let's say somebody gets diagnosed when they're 40. 
and they yeah. live another 40 years, you know, that's 600 grand right there. Yeah. And yep. it doesn't take a genius. You don't have to be a genius investor yeah. <laughs> to, to think, Hey, maybe if we spent $5,000 up front on earlier testing, you know, before they've reached full-fledged type two diabetes. So when they're in the pre-diabetic stage or even in the high normal stage, which we know will often progress. Yeah. And that 5,000, that we could do it for less than 5,000. You know, we just do a few thousand dollars for testing, setting them up with a health coach, you know, getting them on a solid nutrition and, and, and exercise plan. They would then avoid ever developing type two diabetes, and that saves the healthcare system five hundred ninety-five thousand dollars over the course of that that disease, and that's all from just earlier detection and earlier intervention. And it sounds like you're saying that's exactly what we need to be doing in the case of dementia, not waiting until the person has reached that fourth and final stage, but intervening at the earlier stages where I imagine. I know from you know our many conversations and using yeah. your protocol, it's far easier to prevent a disease or to catch one at an earlier stage than it is to to slow or halt or reverse it at the late final stage. Absolutely. And we now know many of these critical factors that are actually driving this, as you indicated, you know, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance and even pre-diabetes, looking at various pathogens and things that are causing inflammation. We know specific viruses that tend to be associated with Alzheimer's and viruses that tend not to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, new biochemistry, things like plasmalogens, where we can look at, okay, is this going to be one of the things that's driving this process. So there's a tremendous amount we can do. What we're doing right now in practice is like saying to someone, oh, you've got a new car, just keep driving it until it just stops. When, when this car yeah. stops, then you know, give us a call and we'll see if, or, if we can fix it. And even like, oh, there's four, four warning lights on the dashboard, yeah, I, but what, what you need to do is just put some tape over them <laughs> because then if you don't see them, they're not there anymore, right? Yeah, those warning lights are what we see with car aging. So just ignore right. them. Just it's put tape crazy. over it. Exactly. Yeah. So it makes no I, sense. It makes no sense, and yet that's what we've we've got so far. So I want to talk about your your new book. You know, we talked about your yeah. first two books, which again were absolutely groundbreaking: uh, the end of Alzheimer's and the end of Alzheimer's program. And this latest book, which is out on I think August seventeenth, right? Right. Um, is the first survivors of Alzheimer's, how patients recovered life and hope in their own words. And I'm excited about this because, you know, your first two books were so thorough and comprehensive by necessity, because you're introducing a new paradigm for how to treat Alzheimer's. And most of my patients just ate them up and devoured them. But my patients are let's say they're, they're highly motivated, highly educated about all of this stuff. And they're, they're the ones who go to the summits and read the blog posts and listen to the podcast. But human beings, primarily, we, we, we learn through stories. Yes. And we, you know, narrative and story is just part of our DNA. Like that's how inf information was passed down for millennia yeah. uh, before yeah. we developed the kinds of tools that we have now and even written language. And so I know I'm a big believer, like when I write my emails or when I write blog posts or when I speak in public, I always use case studies because yeah. I just find that people can relate to that so well. And it goes, it just goes in their brain and sticks in a way that it doesn't, if you could just, you know, tell them about the results of a study, great, that's, that's helpful, but it's not the same as hearing about somebody 
whose life was transformed, you know, from this approach. So I imagine that has something to do with why you decided to write this book. But yeah, t tell us, you know, what was the impetus for this? This is such a great point. And so when the first person contacted me, actually patient zero, who got contacted me after about four months and said, you know, I'm so much better and here's what's going on. And I'm, you know, my memory's better than it's been in 20 years. I was so excited to hear that. And of course it validated all the science we had done in the lab over the years. It validated the overall approach, but it was also heartwarming for, for people to say, you know, I had given up one of the, one of the guys who wrote one of these seven stories in the book, these are all first person stories, said, I've allowed myself to talk to my grandchildren about the future once again. It's wow. just such a heartwarming thing to hear. I mean, a lot of people will, you know, there, there'll be a tear that comes to their eyes reading these stories of people who were hopeless. As you know, uh, Julie, one of the seven people in there, went to a neurologist who is a specialist in Alzheimer's and said, I'm an ApoE44, I'm clearly declining. Could you do anything just to even keep me where I am? And the guy looked at her and said, good luck with that basically offering no hope whatsoever because that's what the literature had suggested. She's now nine and a half years into this doing absolutely great. She's gone from 35th percentile to 98th percentile on her cognitive testing. Um, she, uh, and interestingly, she actually, she, she worked with your team. It turned out she had ended up having an undiagnosed uh, Babesia, which turned out yeah. diagnosed by your team. Thank you very much for that and fantastic care for her. And that turned about to be one of the things that was she was kind of stuck on a plateau so now she's done even better so all of these stories are heartwarming they're articulate they're they really come from the horses mouths themselves this is what it was like so i wanted to give people some hope to say hey i can do this myself i also wanted the people to put down here's what i do every day i wanted them to offer real world experience you know i can say as a physician well i think you should correct your homocysteine or something like that but that doesn't tell you here's what i do here's what i here's the website i go to here's the store i go here's how I cook my food, here's what I do each day and how it's worked and what hasn't worked for me and what the workarounds are, et cetera. So, so excited about the first survivors of Alzheimer's and also updated the protocol, also have a chapter there about enhancing normal cognition because so many of us have suboptimal cognition. We think of it as normal, but we can actually do so much better. So very excited about this and just to see these people get better. That's still the thing that gets me the most excited is hearing about someone who had a terminal illness with cognitive decline improve. Yeah, it's 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 a miracle and it's not, right? And yeah. the one it depends which lens you're looking through. <laughs> if yeah. you're looking through the conventional lens, it's a it's it's like some kind of magic voodoo miracle because right, right. Not, none of the drugs can do it. But when you understand, you know, the system's approach yeah. to looking at chronic disease it's it's not a miracle it's just good medicine it's right. the way it's the way that medicine should be practiced with not just dementia and alzheimer's but all chronic disease and 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 we have to have this approach or we're not going to make it through you know as a, as a species it's just the the numbers are just absolutely shocking so absolutely i imagine i mean i know from my own clinical experience that i learn as much or more from my patients as I do from, you know, yeah. other sort, you know, work uh, seminars and continuing right. education and all of, all, you know, going to conferences and all of that stuff. My, my, I always say my patients have been my, my greatest teachers and that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, 
what have your patients taught you? Like, what are some of the, the, the more surprising insights or, you know, things that maybe you didn't expect or, or lessons that you took away? Because I mean, I imagine as you wrote this book, you were combing through lots and lots of different stories. And so that must have been an incredible learning experience for you. You know, this is such a great point. And as we now with social networking, we're now seeing thousands instead of hundreds. And so we're hearing more and more. And of course, with the trial, we're looking very carefully at each thing, but we've also started something called the ARC project, where we just look very deeply at one or two people who have each of the neurodegenerative diseases. So we've started mm -hmm. with macular degeneration. We're now going on to Parkinson's and Lewy body and things like that. So we'll learn more from each of these, but you're absolutely right. Tremendous lessons. One of the ones I learned first, which is now eight years ago, uh, we started seeing people who weren't responding. These were the ones that turned out to have mycotoxin exposure. Uh -huh. So that's what we didn't know about that. Initially, we just had type one and type two. We didn't know about type three. And so we had to, okay, we had to reorient and say, why do these people, they actually look different. As you know, they tend to present differently. They're, they tend to be younger. They tend to have a more non-amnestic presentation, more executive dysfunction, dyscalculia, primary progressive aphasia, posterior cortical atrophy, things like that. So, and they often will have stress as a big inducer of the cognitive decline. You have to treat them differently. You have to recognize the problem and jump in. One of the things that we're now just, you know, you'll, you kind of see new concepts and you say, wait a minute, is, am I missing something here? One of the things that we're looking at right now is the phenomenon, I call it AI2, but it's basically uh, auto-activated innate immunity. In other words, as you know, we have an auto-antibody, auto-immunity for things like what you had talked about earlier, things like uh, IBD and things like that. And so you have a situation where you start by responding against a foreign uh, a pathogen. You start with the, you know, PAMPs and DAMPs and things like that, and you progress to an, to your uh, adaptive immune system. But if you if it's too wide, you now start uh, you start making antibodies or cytotoxic T cells against your own antigens. So you now have autoimmunity. Okay. What, what we're getting the suspicion of is that there is something that is analogous to that, but at the innate level, where in other words, someone starts with ongoing inflammation. You can bring that down. The inflammation is to, to a pathogen, but you now, because of your own auto activation of this, so, you know, damps, things like a beta, which functions essentially as a damp, you're essentially auto activating a chronic inflammatory state. So it's not good enough just to get rid of the pathogen. You have to kind of reset the system, which is where things like LDN and things like that can, yeah. can come in. So we're starting to see people where things went right but they've really plateaued and even started to backslide a little. And yet there's nothing, they've said, well, we've done everything right. There's no pathogen there. There's nothing that's doing this, but we're now realizing they probably have an intrinsic activation, which we now need to work hard to reset. Yeah. That's really fascinating because I actually just this month, uh, a day before your book comes out, we're launching our first <laughs> workshop on treating autoimmune disease naturally from a functional medicine perspective. And right. so this is all very much on my mind, you yeah. know, the, the, the autoimmune nature of many diseases that weren't considered to be autoimmune previously. So yes. for example, I just saw a paper on fibro, I don't, I don't know if you saw this, on fibromyalgia, 
and they found a lot of antibodies in these patients mm. to muscle tissue, not surprisingly. And yeah, yeah. Um, so now they're reclassifying fibromyalgia as an autoimmune disease. There was a paper on ME-CFS, that's um, yeah, chronic yeah. fatigue syndrome sure. for the listeners that are not familiar with that. And they found antibodies to the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And yeah. that then resulted in lower levels of cortisol and growth hormone production. Wow. So now, you know, there's a thought that at least in some people, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome may be autoimmune. And then I mentioned before, post-infectious Crohn's disease, you know, that's an right, autoimmune right. disease that often starts with an infection. We know that vi uh, viruses are often triggers for autoimmunity, like co uh, long COVID, and many people believe is autoimmune in nature, and it's triggered by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And this, this concept, I'm always explaining it to patients, so I'm really glad you just brought it up, where the idea that if, you know, if there's a trigger for a, con for a disease, that if you remove the trigger, then the body automatically just goes, goes back to normal. Um, so often, and maybe more often than not, that's not the case because exactly. the immune system tends to get on a kind of a track, right? right. So where like the, the trigger dysregulates the immune system and then the immune system just kind of stays dysregulated even when that trigger is gone. And so we have to take steps to balance and regulate the immune system and restore that normal function. And, you know, I'm, I've come to believe that it's, it's quite, I mean, the statistics on autoimmune disease, they, the, the official ones even say one in five Americans now. I think if you can, if wow. you include fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome and, and these kinds, and then maybe even dementia having an autoimmune element yeah. and it could be as high as one in three or one in four. So it's, yeah. it seems like it's a really crucial thing for us all to be aware of. Absolutely. And imagine a scenario in which you never get far enough. Your adaptive system is not doing well enough to generate those antibodies. You're stuck in a state where your innate system is on and your adaptive system has just never quite gotten there. That's what we see as this you know, AI2 idea that there's this constant. So you've essentially have an endogenous inflammation. And one of the things that had been pointed out years ago in Alzheimer's patients, they're not particularly good uh, with phagocytosis and presenting of antigen. Their, their adaptive systems tend to be slow, whereas their innate systems tend to be on. So you never get that nice turning off of the innate system by the adaptive activation. So it's almost like a precursor to autoantibodies. Yeah, it's uh, that that comes up for me or came up. It was puzzling for me earlier in my career when I would see patients that I was virtually convinced had Hashimoto's, for example. Yeah. And yet they never test positive for the exactly. antibodies. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> we could we could do 10 tests and they wouldn't be yep. positive, And yet they, do, they exhibit every other sign and symptom of it. Yeah. And then if you send them for a thyroid ultrasound, they've got diverse multinodular goiter you yeah. know, or some other evidence of Hashimoto's, but they never show up with antibodies. So it's, that's the same thing that you're talking about in this, in this subset. And, you know, I mean, this is how we initially connected, I think, Dale, was around mold and biotoxins. Right, right. And I've, as you know, talked so much about this and, and written so much about it over the years, but I find that it's still, the awareness around it is still so low. And, yeah. you know, there's so many people who are, who are spending a lot of time in water damaged buildings and 
even when they become aware of it, if they try to bring it up to the building manager, if it's their workplace, for example, or try to get help at home, it's just so difficult because it, it feels like we're kind of living in the stone age when it comes to awareness of building science and indoor air quality. This is the biomedical equivalent of Surfside. So instead of waiting for your building to crumble, you know, you're waiting basically for your immune system to crumble. You're waiting for your nervous system to crumble. You know, don't wait. There's actually so much that can be done ahead of time. And I think, you know, this is a new era because of Surfside. People are thinking more like, hey, let's look early. And I, I wish the medical community would, would listen to that more. Yeah. I mean, the interesting parallel there is, is if, if anything, if there is some, there, there, I think there are probably several silver linings of COVID. Um, I've, I've experienced them myself and, and several others have, but from like a perspective of what we're talking about now, I've never seen more articles in the popular media about, yeah. about indoor air quality and filtration and yeah, <laughs> changes, of, yeah. changes of air per minute. And you know, like right, these right. things that you and I have been thinking about a lot, like how yeah. do you, for a long time, and now they are finally starting to get on the radar and, and you hear about schools install, you know, installing air, air, air filters or people bringing more air, air, air filtration in their home, um, primarily because of concern about COVID, but hopefully that has a, uh, you know, that can have a positive impact on reducing um, other comorbidities right. that can come from result of exposure to, to you know, bad indoor air. Absolutely. And I think you know, we've gotten away with as health practitioners for thousands of years with doing things that are very uh, simple. And the reality is we're now understanding a lot more about human physiology. It's not so simple. And we need to identify when you actually see what's driving the problem. And as you indicated, getting it early on, huge. Yeah. So always a pleasure to speak with you, Dale. And I'm, I'm just... Uh, so grateful for the work that you're doing. It's it's the, the gift of hope to yeah. these people. It, it it means more than anything. You know, just just having hope that there is some other path and a steady decline and, and painful, not just right. for them but for the people around them, uh, decline. You know, for the rest of their life. And it's just, you know, uh, as a clinician myself, to be able to. Uh, use the elements of your protocol or refer someone to you if they're in that situation. It's a, it's a tremendous gift. So I, I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Chris. I, I, my wife, Aida, and I are huge fans of yours and fans of your fantastic work. So thanks so much. Always great to talk to you. So before we finish up, just want to ask you what's next. I always like to do that because you always have a lot of interesting stuff planned and going on. And then I want to tell people where, where they can uh, get the book and find out more about the Recode protocol and your work. And, and both, both for people who are experiencing cognitive decline or dementia are concerned about that themselves, but also for, for professionals because you, you, as I do, you train professionals. So I would love to yeah. uh, send them to the right resources as well. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, and we've trained over 2000 practitioners from 10 different countries and all over the US. So thank you so much. So mm -hmm. step one, what's next? Step one, uh, we're doing a larger randomized controlled clinical trial that'll start in January. Uh, that will have 100 patients and looking again at all the different parameters, their MRIs and their, and their MOCA scores and their CNS vital sign scores. And also looking at, can we now add other things? Do we need to be adding other? Do we need to be looking more carefully yeah. at plasmalogens? Do we need to be looking? We did 
we actually used IntelliX uh, DNA from, as you know, Dr. Sharon Hausman-Cohen for this last uh, trial um, and looking at, okay, are there specific genetic predeterminants that we need to address as well? So the next trial. Second thing uh, is that um, we have the ARC project that I mentioned. So we're looking at small numbers of people with deep dives to see you know, what's absolutely critical. And then the third thing, as I mentioned, we're developing a large scale prevention program. The idea is, can we actually move the needle on global cognitive decline? This is a trillion dollar global problem and uh, you know, growing, as you know, it's a huge issue. There may be some increase because of post COVID-19. There's a lot of brain fog, as you know, associated with COVID-19. And so we may even see a bump. And so what we'd like to do is look at something which would essentially be hierarchical. You can get most people with just prevention. They won't have problems. A few of them will bleed through. So you now want to do those and so forth and so on until, yeah. you know, there'll be one or two that actually need to be inpatients and you need to look at everything. With that, it can be an efficient way to reduce the global burden of dementia. I really believe that, as I said, this is a now an optional disease. Hmm. All right. So where can people find your book uh, or find out more about your book? Yeah. And then where can people find out more about the Recode Protocol if, if they are, or a family member or friend is, is uh, dealing with this uh, cognitive decline? And, and where can people who might want to, professionals, doctors, coaches, et cetera, find out about training? Yeah, great point. Uh, and so you can find out from the book, uh, um, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, any of those. Uh, you can look at uh, drbredison.com to get further information. You can also go to Apollo Health Co because part of the future is writing code, getting more, uh, more intense algorithms, more defined algorithms so that you can look at larger data sets. Uh, so that'll be one way to go. And for training, absolutely, you just go on to drbredison.com and look at Recode Training, Recode 2.0 Training. Uh, and so you know, all those, uh, all those uh, currently available. That's fantastic, Dale. Always a pleasure to speak to you and look forward to having you on at this probably in a couple of years to get the updates on the, 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 the RCT and everything else that you're working on. Can't wait to hear more. Thanks so much, Chris. Again, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the great work you're doing. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. The COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc on our institutions, our society, and almost every aspect of our lives. Yet within each crisis is a silver lining, an opportunity to reinvent ourselves, to discover a new path, and to take a leap of faith into the life we wanna live. I know from speaking with a lot of you that this includes finding more meaningful and rewarding work. COVID has shown us that life is too short to do work that doesn't make us come alive and allow us to contribute to a better world. If you enjoyed this episode and you're interested in the topics we discussed, you might want to learn more about the profession of health coaching and what it has to offer. We've put together a resource page that explains what a health coach is. Hint, it's probably not what you think. How training as a health coach can change your life as well as your future clients' lives. And an ebook about what a career as a health coach might look like. You can find it all for free at cresser.co slash discover. That's cresser.co slash discover. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. 
If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.